Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, here to break down the Orioles' top 10 prospects with you today. Joining me is our good friend John Mioli with the Baltimore Sun. John has done the Orioles' top 10 for us for a couple of years now. Beat writer for the Orioles on top of this organization, top to bottom. John, this was certainly a unique year to try and put together a top 10 prospects list. At the very least, you knew who your clear-cut number one was, Adley Rutschman. Uh, but just take us through what was this process like for you trying to get reports and up-to-date information on these guys when it's only the alternate site and instructional league? Yeah, so it, it was obviously very different. You know, I tried to, in a normal year, see in person, you know, everyone who's going to be ranked in any significant way. And that's easy here with the Orioles affiliates being all within, you know, except for the AAA one in Norfolk. And you've seen those guys, you know too much at that point in your life, but everyone's like, you know, within two plus hours away. So it's really, you know, a big part of it is seeing them and kind of getting a feel for what they do. And at the very least, like pictures, like you, you know what they throw because you see, and you're not taking somebody's word for it. So this year, the process is a little different. You had to rely a lot more on people inside the organization, the coaches, the player development staff, um, you know, we'd have outside people who were able to access the video that they, that they uh, put up in the shared, I don't even know what you call it, the shared uh, uh, system for all the stuff from the alternate site. You know, people who got to see a little bit of instructs of some of the guys, but not all the guys. It was really, it was a unique process, but I think honestly, one of the things that this list, you know, a little disappointing to do made it easier in that so few of the guys that we expected to graduate this year did. You know, last year in the top 10, there was Austin Hayes, Ryan Mountcastle, Hunter Harvey. You know, Dean Kramer was right outside the top 10. Keegan Aiken was still in it. Um, you know, you thought maybe there's a chance to use Neil Diaz gets up and gets a couple months worth of at-bats and graduates, and none of them hit. Um, Hunter Harvey dropped out, but, you know, Austin Hayes graduated. Ryan Mountcastle was, like, games worth of at-bats short from graduating all those pesky walks they made them. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, so the, the, the flip side was that some of them, you know, were guys who, A, there's a huge, you know, baseline of information on, and B, I got to see them, you know, pitch play every day in the big leagues, and at least that, that information was a little more, a little more, you know, up-to-date and firsthand. Yeah, and the Orioles – Made some positive strides forward this year. They finished 25 and 35, but they were competitive into September during this shortened season. And most importantly, we saw some young guys take steps forward. Anthony Santander, who showed us flashes last year, really had a good year this year before he got hurt. Uh, we saw, you know, Pedro Severino, he tailed off a little bit, but we saw some positive things from him early on in the year. Ryan Mountcastle obviously came up and just raked from the time he made his debut. Keegan Aiken and Dean Kramer made their major league debuts, showed some good things. John Means, uh, once he got back on the mound, you know, had a, had a decent year as well, following up an all-star campaign. So it does feel like this Orioles team is moving forward, but they're going to need more. And that starts with Adley Rutschman. I would imagine there was no doubt in anyone's mind that this guy wasn't the number one prospect in the system. What kind of things were you hearing about the strides he took this year at the alternate site and what Orioles fans can expect from him within the next year or two? 
So I think honestly for Adley, and you're right, there was no question as to who was going to be was going to be first. And I'd venture to say, you know, I could probably start right in the <clears throat> at least the background part of next year's number one prospect report. Uh, he might be the top prospect in all of baseball at that point, if, if we're being honest. But I think it started on really for him at spring training. He got to go to big league camp. He got to, you know, go through the ringer. You know, catcher's days in spring training are the longest of anybody They're there early doing catcher, like, you know, defensive work. They did a lot of cool drills. They were actually nice enough to let me basically show up when they did this year on one day. So I was in the I, w- I was in, the, in the cages doing, you know, watching them do the drill work at seven in the morning, following them around until they were finally done it, you know, in their late BP at three in the afternoon. And he really took to all that work. You know, for someone who's as talented in so many ways as him, you could either say, I'm good enough whenever they're ready for me, or you can say, I'm going to address things that I can address, and there's always ways to get better. And from spring training through the time to the alternate site, he was trying to find those ways to get better. He did some stuff, they said, with a swing to get him more on time and just, you know, like you hear from hitters all the time, now to get them in that good position to hit, and they contact the barrel through the zone. And there was a little adjustment period. And then I started hearing from a couple of people asking about other stuff down there uh, as I was reporting other stories or talking to people who talked to people around like the end of July, or I guess the end of August, you started just hearing like, okay, Adley's just like killing people. <laughs> like, like he's hitting like multiple home runs a game and just like just crushing the ball. And I think that pretty much continued all the way through, through the alternate site and down at the instructs. It's just a player who, you know, probably could hold his own in the big leagues right now. And knows he's not going to get that chance probably, you know, at least until the very end of this year, if at all next year, and probably not till 2022, if we're being realistic and you say, well, I could, I could sit here and wait, or I could get better and make it so that when I get up, I'm hitting the ground running. He's somebody who's doing that, who's doing the ladder. He's really ready to put in that work and hit the ground running. Yeah, this is someone that I think is is one of the most exciting young talents making his way up through the minor leagues right now. The thing that just sticks with me is uh, I, I do a lot of our draft calls out here on the West Coast. I mostly do pro coverage, but I help out with West Coast draft coverage. And I remember asking a, a veteran evaluator about this, someone who has scouted the area for years. This was not a newbie or a low-level guy. This was a high-level guy who has scouted West Coast baseball for a long time. And I just remember his comparison where he told me and this is someone who doesn't say ridiculous things this is someone who generally is stingy with his positive evaluations said I think he can be a Chris Bryant hitter and an Austin Hedges defender behind the plate and this guy scouted both Chris Bryant and Austin Hedges I just you know when you hear something like that it sticks with you I have yet to hear a bad thing about this guy. And while you always have to be wary with prospects, especially catchers, because all it takes is a knee injury here, a concussion there, and things can go sideways. It just continues to sound like this is going to be a generational talent in Major League Baseball as he was in college. And frankly, as he was in high school as the Oregon State Player of the Year. Yeah, and, and, you know, for all the, you know, the drawbacks of this year being the way that it was, being, you know, no games, no, you know, there there wasn't anything except for these this, this alternate camp and the instructional league. If this season had gone off the way it was supposed to, you know, Adley Rushman probably, you know, probably starts in high A, spends three months there, you know, putting some miles on his legs, putting some miles on his arm, 
and it's good experience, game experience, learning how to call games, learning how to learning the pitchers, learning the grinds of minor league life. But instead, he went, he got two, you know, concentrated months facing pitching staff was at the alternate site was either guys who had big league time and were trying to get back or guys who were clearly good enough to be in a big league rotation and were just buying their time like in Kramer and Keegan Aiken or guys like DL and Mike Bauman, Grayson Rodriguez and Kyle Bradish who have nasty stuff. He got really concentrated, you know, development work and time to work or to improve against pitching caliber that he probably wouldn't have seen spending half the year in the Carolina league. And then, you know, in the second half of the Eastern league, everybody knows that's kind of just, you, you, you're not, you're not getting the best, uh, you're not seeing the best arms and the best talent, you know, come the middle of July into August in the Eastern league. So instead of getting a lot of not empty calories, but a lot of just games for the sake of games and putting that miles on his body, he was able to do work against, players who were better than he would have played against otherwise. And I think he and the organization, you know, both looked at that and said, this is a benefit that, that we're glad that he took advantage of. Yeah. I'm definitely going to be very, very curious to see uh, what he looks like next year, getting into game situations, playing every day, because you can't replicate that. But um, I just go back to everything I heard about this guy in the draft, everything I heard about this guy through his minor league debut and, and everything you're talking about here at the alternate site um, this is one of the most impressive young prospects in baseball and someone that could and should be a fa- a foundational player for the Orioles. Again, nothing is guaranteed, but you look for the tools, you look for the makeup. By all accounts, he seems to have it. The Orioles need more than just one player, though, and pitching is always in demand. And there are two pitchers here, Grayson Rodriguez and Deal Hall. They were number two and three in this system last year. They added Heston Kierstad as the number two overall pick this year. Ryan Mountcastle came up and hit like he always has and just really was a difference-making impact hitter in the middle of the Orioles lineup. How much debate was there to keep Rodriguez and Hall at two and three as opposed to maybe putting Kierstad or Mountcastle above them and between them? What was that process like for you? Um, honestly, I didn't <laughs> – Maybe maybe I should have given a little more thought to it than I did, but I thought that – I just think that those two pitchers are – you know, they would probably I, – I, I think that they could be – their organizations where either of them would be the top prospect in another organization, whereas I'm not sure that, you know, even though Kirsten has taken second and Ryan Mountcastle all he's done is hit, I don't know that you could say that about either of those guys. And honestly, given what – you know, just the overall profile of D.L. Hall as a as a hard-throwing lefty starter, you know, who's going to have four pitches, who's going to be able to miss bats the way that, you know, the Royals believe he can once he figures out his mechanics. And by all accounts, he's kind of done that in the last couple of months and brought that into the instructional league was even better than, than probably I wrote him up as. You know, I think that's just like a completely special pitcher. And for someone like Grayson Rodriguez, kind of got the nod above him because there's not as much question marks. You see that kind of buy, you see that kind of delivery, and you see that kind of arsenal, and you know exactly what that looks like at 20 projecting out to be 28 and how good that's going to be. And there's a little more question with D.L. Hall, but I think that the upside might be better if he reaches it. And I think combined those two things, I know I'm kind of going a roundabout way, I think that those two pitchers are much more valuable and much more impactful than 
than even even the best corner outfield bat, which which I think in different ways is what they kind of hope they have in Mount Castle and first down. Yeah, in your discussions with evaluators inside and or outside the Orioles system, was there any discussion for for those guys to be above them, or, or was it pretty consensus that Rodriguez and Hall go ahead? It's pretty consensus. I don't. I I, I would. I would think that um, you know there was maybe some about. I mean, not a lot of people saw that, and you know there were some. I think the only people who would really have that would be like on the amateur side of the Oriole system. I think they really kind of internally understand what they have in these two pitchers. Uh, you know, when, when you look at the types of impact players that the Astros front office that Mike Elias came from inherited when they took the job, you know, Jose Altuve is already there. George Springer was their top pick the year before. And those two guys were, you know, pretty important to what they ultimately built once they started building something different. I think that, you know, there's a lot of looking for the hitters and the under-the-radar guys who could grow into that the way that they did in Baltimore. And I think that, you know, the answer is it's those two pitchers. If those are the two guys who, you know, they're going to say, you know, we were able to do X, Y, and Z. Thank goodness those guys were there because these are two guys who can be the type of homegrown starting pitchers that the Orioles haven't had in, you know, decades. They probably haven't had a true – I mean, until John Means, you can't even count as this kind of guy. I didn't even rank him in 2017 or 18, I think. They don't develop these kinds of top flight starting pitchers. And I think that there's a pretty clear idea in the organization and outside that, that they have them here. Yeah, yeah, obviously there was some success with Kevin Gossman and Dylan Bundy, um, but obviously Bundy wasn't able to quite reach his ceiling with the Orioles as they hoped. And Gossman had some good years, but both of them have found success in other places, particularly last year. I want to move into Heston Kirstad. The Orioles kind of threw everyone for a loop when they took him second overall in the draft. And again, just talking to some national level evaluators before the draft, one of the things that kept coming up was, you know, Heston Kirstad has a very good chance to go in the top 10. There were some people who thought that he made a lot of sense for the Mariners at number six. So it's not like this was a guy that was in the back of the first round or you know barely in first round consideration and the Orioles just wanted to save money. This was someone that people did think was a potential top 10 pick. And again, I heard as high as number six. Um, at the same time, this was a savings pick. The Orioles uh, signed him for just over $5 million. It was more than $2.5 million under slot. So this was about taking a guy who they thought was good and saving some money for later picks. What kind of player do the Orioles think they have here in Heston Kierstad? And realistically, what kind of offensive impact are we talking about? Because Ryan Mountcastle, no one doubts the offensive impact. For Heston Kierstad to be ranked above him, I feel like from the outside looking in is a testament to there is real offensive upside here. Yeah. And I think that what became clear, you know, not only, you know, taking into account that this was a pick that the Orioles used to save a lot of money uh, and put together a draft that I think was better than it would have been if they didn't take that strategy, given they spent a lot of money on, you know, their, their last three picks, you know, their video got an above slot bonus, Kobe Mayo and, Carter Baumler both got big bonuses that they wouldn't have normally been able to get at the end of the draft. Taking out the financial side of this, it became clear as the Orioles were, as the Orioles were putting together, you know, their draft board and what they saw 
and what they wanted that they put a lot of stock into what happened this year. Even though it was only three, four weeks of a college baseball season, they put a ton of stock into how guys were performing. And, and I think the understanding that I got is that they're project they basically used what they were doing to project out a full season for all these guys at the, at the kind of level they were performing at the beginning of the college season. So someone like Heston Kirsten, who had the power numbers, you know, basically going back, to the, you know, an everyday player as a freshman, they have two plus years of the power. They saw a lot of hard contact in the zone. They saw, especially this year, saw a pretty big decrease in the swing and miss. And that made the strikeouts go down, made, you know, his walk rate better. And they looked at all that stuff and said, this is the type of guy who is going to do that improvement. You saw that with you know, their second pick, Jordan Westberg, as well. He was somebody who was able to cut down the strikeouts a lot. And they projected that was going to keep going. So I think that's a roundabout way of saying that, you know, the Orioles see a guy who's going to be that middle of the order, you know, 30-plus, 30 35-home run hitter in, in his peak who can play a decent right field and probably has the arms to stay on right. And they think he's a better defender than I think the consensus is. But who doesn't think that, you know, their, their bat-first guy is a better defender than everyone else does? I'm sure, you know, if you guys had a dollar and they put a dollar in the jar every time you heard that from somebody in the 30 organizations, then, then there'd be a nice big uh, – There'd be a nice dinner at the at the BA Christmas party <laughs> once this process is all done. But you you put all that together and they see the kind of impact bat that they want. I think that going back to those Houston days, I keep bringing it up. Taking Brady Aiken and um, sorry Mark Bell early in these drafts, you know, with those with those number one overall picks, kind of showed this front office how risky pitchers are. And they believe how they just can develop pitchers and they use the for the draft to take guys who work through impact bats. And I think that's where they ended up with Kirstad. Yeah, he's certainly a, a very, very talented power hitter. And, you know, it is worth noting he did lead USA Baseball's collegiate national team in hitting the previous summer. And that's something that a lot of teams put a lot of stock in that experience. So uh, no doubt this can be a potentially impact hitter. How much of a debate was there between him and Mountcastle? Because Mountcastle, again, very you know different type of player. He was a high school draft pick. He was a shortstop when he was drafted. But at the same time, it's always been about the bat with him. We saw that at every level. AAA International League MVP came up this year, was one of the top rookie hitters from the time he debuted to the end of the season. Again, it's funny you mentioned the, the guy who can hit that the organization says is a better defender than anyone else thinks, when in reality he probably isn't. Uh, Mountcastle started the year in left field. He, he did make a couple nice catches. He's, he had a nice play in Buffalo, I remember in particular. But uh, by the end of the year, he was playing first base almost exclusively. How much debate was there between these two, and ultimately what was it that put Kerstad ahead? There, there was a decent amount of debate. I think that – I think that – one of the separators was, you know, I don't, I don't have it open in front of me. I probably should. You know, I think that if you looked at both of them, you know, at certain ages, who would you say, who would you say is better? And I think Mountcastle probably got to the big leagues before Kirst Adwell, um, given that one's a college player and one's a high school player. But I think that, I think that ultimately the idea that Kirst probably will have a little more usable power in the games even if he doesn't have you know 
the ability to hit average was a little bit of a separator. And I think that I think that what we saw from Ryan Mountcastle this year wasn't necessarily enough to move him up. That was kind of where I was at. You know, it was like we, 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 as we were talking a little earlier, it's like how do you move guy up or down in the year like this? And he, he seemed like he was in the right. He's he's always seemed like he's been in the right place to me. And I think that when you take somebody and you invest as much, you know, financially and baseball wise into Kerstad and hearing what they had to say about you know, where they think he could end up. You don't hear the Orioles, you know, front office or anyone around the game talk about a Ryan Mountcastle the same way you could you hear him talk about Kerstad. Granted, the Orioles, again, probably think a lot more highly of, you know, Kerstad than anyone else does. But I will say that, you know, after doing this for however many years, uh, I don't know, just four or five, they all blend together in a way. Uh, they all feature Ryan Mountcastle and Hunter Harvey, so that makes them all blend together in a significant way. But the idea that Ryan Mountcastle was going to be anything other than what he has proven to be was never one that I really bought into. I thought he got such a raw deal in terms of all the defensive stuff that he had to, you know, deal with on a constant basis, all the all the you know, people with the Orioles who just seemed not to like the pick when they made it and didn't make it so that they were improving the player that whose job it was to improve improve. All you know when he was trying to change his swing to be the power-oriented swing it is now. He didn't really have a lot of support in the organization. He had to go do it himself, and to the point where he's at, you know, he deserves a ton of credit. But that's to even say that is to say that he was not going to be this, you know. Regardless, you know, I think he just kind of the perception of him never matched the reality. This is a guy who was going to hit. And I'm really glad to see him hit in the big leagues. Yeah, no, there's no question. I mean, we've talked about it. If you can hit, they will find a spot in the big leagues for you. Again, the arm is going to be a problem. You and I have talked about this on podcasts before, but if you can hit, they'll find a spot and he's going to hit. And at the end of the day, that's going to make him an everyday player in the major leagues. From the outside looking in, John, it really felt like this top five was the very clear cut top five. And then, things started to kind of open up a little bit, 6 to 10 range. How much discussion was there for you about ordering these players the way you did? I mean, can they be intermixed a little bit, or was it pretty much set, this guy's 6, this guy's 7, et cetera, et cetera? What was this process of the 6 to 10 like? Um, it, it was pretty – and there were probably like 6 or 7 players that were in play for this this range. Um, I guess if you count Hunter Harvey, I keep mentioning him. He he would have been ranked in the top ten for like the seventh or eighth straight year. I know he tied Gary Sanchez's uh, record, if we can call it that, last year um, for most times in an organization's top ten. And you know he was somebody who's who's just in the way I talked about Mountcastle. It's like he's just in the right place until you know he graduates. He was always somebody who was just in that range. It's like yeah, he's Hunter Harvey, he's still good. But I just felt like this year there were too many you know players who who you could move above someone like him. Um, in terms of the order, I think that it was pretty fluid in a lot of ways. Um, I think that I think that the Orioles, as an organization, pretty much from the time spring training ended, you hear you we heard I heard a lot more about Gunnar Henderson and what he could be and what you know what they wanted of him and the the buzz out of him or the buzz on him, excuse me from from the alternate site and just the challenges of being 
somebody who would have been in their first full professional season hitting against those types of pitchers I was talking about with Adley Rushman, you know, these guys who have big league time, these guys who are going to be in the big leagues and, you know, in two weeks, these guys who are like Grayson Rodriguez, DL Hall, these guys, premium stuff. He had to learn quick what to do and how to, how to hold his own against those types of arms. And he did by all accounts do that. The Orioles were thrilled with some of the progress he made on his swing. Um, And then you hear people on the outside get to take a look at that down at the instructional league. And they agreed pretty much consensus that after those, you know, two top pitchers and Adley Rutschman that Gunnar Henderson is probably one of the best players they saw in the whole Florida circuit. So I think that that made that pretty easy to, to have him above them. Uh, using the LDS, I know that's somebody you're familiar with a lot. It's, he was someone, you know, we heard a ton because we asked about Ryan Mountcastle a lot during the season as to when he was going to get up because the Orioles were running out, you know, a bunch of schlock in left field. And Ryan Mountcastle was down there learning left field and buoy, and, you know, you know he's going to hit. So you was like, where is this guy? This is a team that was theoretically like playing for a playoff spot. You know, where was he? Um, but you didn't really hear as much about Yusuf Diaz. He's somebody I, I'm sure we've talked about on the cast if we've talked about it at all. I put it in the chat too. And when I say it, I try to make clear that it's not about his work ethic, but I just think that once he gets to the big leagues, he's going to be a big leaguer and everything that he does well, he's going to do well consistently. The problem is, is when you've been in Bowie for three years, which is not the case for him, it's hard to see it and it's hard to do it. I still think that's a really good player. I think there's a lot more challenges to get on the field than he's going to have. You know, if he had just shot to the big leagues before and, and Austin Hayes got established, before Cedric Mullins got established, before Santander got established, now before Ryan Mountcastle was out there, now he's got to play through guys. But I still haven't given up in, on the idea that that's, that is the type of player that the Orioles got when they when they were picking a sentence for Manny Machado. I think he's really talented. And I think that as long if the Orioles blink first and say, all right, you know what, if you need to be in the big leagues to do it, here you are, you're in the big leagues, now you better do it. I think that if they blink first and let him have that opportunity, then then he will take advantage of it. Um, going long-winded here, but in terms of those three pitchers, I think Mike Bauman, who, who was next, who was next at eight, was really – Another one of those guys I was doing the recruiting for some Ryan Mountcastle stuff down at the alternate site as I was talking to pitching people, hitting people who were working with these prospects down there. He was somebody who just has the kind of stuff that that separates him, even over somebody like Aiken and Kramer, who are kind of in the same tier in my mind, those kind of good, you know, future back-end starters. But Bauman has stuff that could be more than that. You know, he's consistently in the mid to high nine or uh, mid nineties and he can go get, you know, a 98, 99 when he needs it. I was there when he threw no hitter in July, 2019, I think it was. And he was throwing 99 in the ninth inning and it didn't look like he was even breaking a sweat out there. He's just the kind of guy who can go get it. He really benefited from, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, you know, the, the, the real mechanical work, the strength work, you know, they were pretty much have revamped their entire player development system in the last in the last two years, you know, this year there was a lot more, you know, the first year was pitching philosophy, pitching instruction. This year they put a lot of work to different kinds of strength programs, conditioning program, movement programs. And I think somebody big and strong as Tim can already throw the ball as hard and manipulate the baseball 
learning his body a little bit more, learning what his delivery should be, learning how to get strong in good ways is only going to make that even more impressive going forward. So he was kind of the one that was that separated himself from me, even though he wasn't able to get that big league chance. And now that, you know, he got shut down and he got shut down with a flexor mass strain, which we all know what that could mean. They say that he's going to be back ready for spring training. And if that's the case, then he's going to be somebody who is going to, you know, in big league camp in Sarasota, just wowing people next year. And I think that's not something that as impressive as pitching wise, Keegan Aiken and Dean Kramer were, I don't think anyone's going to say, wow, that guy completely blew me away. And they might say that about Mike Bauman. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's, there's definitely something to like there. And we all hope he's able to stay healthy because as you mentioned, a flexor mass strain a lot of times can lead to more serious arm injuries, but we'll, uh, we'll see what he's able to do if he's able to come back and stay healthy. John, how many other guys were in the mix for this top 10? You briefly mentioned Hunter Harvey. How many other guys were, were kind of on the cusp? So, so Hunter Harvey was one of them. He was one of them. And I'm sure having done a lot of times, you like put guys into, into where you generally think they are. And then it can be some guys that happened after the Orioles made all those million trades. And it happened to me with Dylan Tate and Luis Ortiz. I was like, oh, well, they're in the top 10. And as the process goes on, you're like, wait, maybe not. Maybe not. And kind of have that epiphany where you're like, once you start seeing a guy outside of where you thought he would be, it's really easy to say, you know what? I'm, I'm changing this, but um, so Hunter Harvey was in there, you know, he could still be everything the Orioles thought he was, you know, I'm sure he could close if they wanted him to, but it's just, it's just really hard to, uh, it's just really hard to envision a full healthy year. And even though he was relatively healthy this year, I guess you, you can't even say that he missed, he missed over a month, but he wasn't as effective in terms of missing bats at the big league level. So we've seen enough at this point that I felt comfortable moving him down, even though he's still, right on the outside. Uh, Kyle Bradish was another player who was on the cusp. Uh, there was a lot of, there was a lot of buzz on him internally um, just based on what he was able to do in, in terms of getting more consistent his delivery, even though I understand it's not for everybody. Um, he was one of the four pitchers the Orioles acquired for Dylan Bundy. They're, I guess the second most advanced Isaac Matson was another pitcher who was at the secondary camp he had triple time he probably would have been in the bigs this year if this was a normal year but Bradish has emerged internally as the centerpiece of the return that the Orioles got for Dylan Bundy who as you know when just you know pitched like of somebody who deserved every Cy Young vote he got and probably more uh in this in his first season with the Angels so that's something that I think that they want to make sure that uh they want to make sure that Bradish is known as the type of player who's worth being traded uh, for Dylan Bundy and what Dylan Bundy is now. I just, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard for me. You know, this goes for the next person, Jordan Westberg, too. It's really hard when you can't see them and kind of conceptualize what they do and see how hitters react to it and see how it looks over the course of a game and multiple looks. It's really hard to move somebody super, super higher or lower than where you thought they would be without having that kind of frame of reference. So that was kind of what happened with Bradish there. You know, he was, I don't believe he was in the midseason update that, that, that you all did. And for him to get moved all the way into the top 10, having seen him and without kind of the outside corroboration that you'd want for like that was really, 
was it was just something I had a hard time doing and even to put him above someone like Kramer or Aiken who showed they could do it in the big leagues and Bauman who you know has probably the best raw stuff out of this tier of pitching was really hard for me to do and then Jordan Sperg the 30th overall pick this year the Florida competitive balance round pick he was somebody who had this you know I the first week in October was when was was when these were we when these were um do I'm sorry I'm rambling here uh the first week in October was when w- the top 10 was due if these had been compiled after instructs when people inside and outside got to see just what kind of you know talent he is he might have been in the top 10 I think that at the beginning of the process and when 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 these calls were all happening obviously the draft people liked him a lot but even even they had him in this tier and not above anyone else but I think that you know there were people outside the organization who went in for a couple of days and saw Jordan Westberg play and the big leaguers at instructs were clear and he was one of them. So I think he's somebody who you know, he's not in a bad place. He's right there at 11. Um, but he's somebody who, if this ranking had, you know, if this was in the, the West divisions, which you guys do later, he might easily be in the top 10. Yeah. as you mentioned, you know, with a lot of these guys, just not seeing them in action for a year or longer, it definitely makes it tough, but uh, we appreciate your hard work for us and your insight on all these Orioles prospects. It's always fun having you on. And uh, yeah, just any final thoughts? Um, Not really, you know, you know, every year for the Baltimore Sun, I do a, you know, a companion piece to just kind of more analysis on it. And last year's I basically wrote that, you know, if all these guys are in it again this time next year, then, then, there's going to be a huge problem and then the coronavirus pandemic happened and there was a 60 game big league season and no minor league season. So none of these guys could graduate and that did qualify as a big problem. But, you know, I think the same thing that kind of, you know, as somebody who, who's really as interested in, you know, following all this stuff and doing it the way that I am, I'm sure you know that the best stuff you get to do is the new stuff and seeing new, new players and, and learning about new things they're trying to do. That's the kind that's the stuff that really makes this process, you know, whether you do it for one team like me or God knows how many to have you doing, it's fun to really learn about new stuff and rank new players and have a lot of movement. And I expected that to be something that happened this year with the Orioles system. There just weren't as many graduations as there would have been in the bigger in, in a normal year. There weren't as many, you know, pop up players who would have benefited from you know six months of games and I think that next year I'm just I I can't even I can't even imagine what what that like four to ten four to twenty range is going to look like for this system because there are so many candidates there's so many players who who they believe can can improve under what they're trying to do and the only way to sort it all out is going to be for for them to play 120 something games and it's going to be awesome and I really hope they're able to do it. Yeah, we all hope that everything's back to normal next year for reasons beyond baseball, but obviously uh, more games in more cities, minor leagues, major leagues, that's what we're all hoping for from a pure baseball perspective. John, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you as always. Once again, this has been another edition of the Baseball America Prospects podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For John Mioli, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.